Chapter Five of the Master Girl: A Romance by Ashton Hilliers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The testing of the new thing, and now there was gloom in the household. Pulyun was gaining strength daily, and as irritable as your convalescent is permitted to be. His leg was not yet sound enough or supple enough to attempt the descent of the face for the knee-joint creaked from its six weeks of disuse. On the other hand, it could not get enough of play within the limits of the cave. His nerves excited him, his temper was less even than when he was helpless, and, worst of all, his conscience would not let him be. Thus came Idos down to men. Dayan put up with her man's petulant outbreaks, and slaved for him harder than ever a diet of dark bear-meat, solid bear-meat daily and twice a day, although admirably suited to keep up the bodily warmth, is hard upon the liver, unless regulated by abundant exercise, which in the case of her husband was out of the question. She cast about for something lighter, but game was getting scarce in the immediate neighbourhood of the cave, and indeed in the glen itself. She had hunted it too closely and too long, it was the depth of winter in the mountains. Migratory life had long since left for the lower levels. Resident life was scanty. Dayan betook herself to trapping. A bird of some kind a man should have. Pulyun, peering moodily from his cave platform, watched her bending over a trap far below and a long way off. The cackle of a chuff came up clearly through the cold air, a danger signal and it struck him as singular that the bird should be calling so far from the woman, for as a rule they ignored her movements unless she were within, say, a hundred paces. Yet he put the matter from him. No dream had given him prescience of impending danger. The girl, busied at her work, crouched beside her gin, the deerskin quiver upon her shoulder, her bow laid beside her hand, the man was annoyed at the sight. He distrusted this new-fangled plaything of hers. Why could she not carry spears as he would have done, as he was going to do in a week or so? Everything she did, or failed to do, had power to annoy the poor fellow now. That she bore with him so quietly was an offence in itself. Had she answered him back, had she met him half-way in the quarrel which he had been provoking for a week past, he would have taken such an attitude in good part, that is to say, he would have found it natural, and treated it naturally, beaten her to wit, as every savage man has ever done since the male subjugated the female. But Dayan's gentle, unselfish reserve and perpetual activities on his behalf gave him never an opening. So he watched her moodily, jealously. Come, the secret is out at last, we have a name for the complaint. This is of the primitive passions. It is one which we share with or inherit from the brutes. A cat, a lapdog, a parrot will sicken of jealousy. Children, savages, uneducated people, our semi-educated fellow citizens, our new masters, are subject to severe and protracted fits of this torturing disease. We have known a working man middle-aged of failing health, and with a sickly wife and young family to support, 
throw up a foreman's post of twenty-eight shillings the week and begin life again upon seventeen as a common labourer from sheer jealousy of one of the gang under him whom he could not induce his firm to discharge without a reason women are more liable to the malady than men because they have upon the whole less distractions for their minds a man can escape from the proximity of his enemy once possibly his friend he can steep his mind in business in politics in literature in sport a woman has her rival ever at her elbow in her kitchen in the nursery in the schoolroom or next door in the case of poor pullune the position was reversed it was he who with hardening muscles and strengthening passion was debarred from healthy and adequate physical exercise and was fain to eat his heart in bitterness of spirit with an accusing conscience ever at his elbow a housemate for which he had no name for the thing like many other things rheumatism gravity panic terror malaria etc although maleficent had not yet been separated personified and named picture him overlooking with the beady deep-set far-sighted eyes of the savage like an eagle from his eyrie the doings of his jealously loved squaw a half mile away and three hundred feet below there she had set that gin and half a rose her chert knife in one hand her bow in the other sudden as the pounce of a lynx and nothing in nature save the stroke of a snake can be swifter a man leapt upon her from the scrub pullune caught his breath for the enemy had her by the carrosse and must have borne her down had not his foot caught in a trailing bower pumulus as it was it was the nearest thing in the world for as he stumbled still fast to her the skewer at her throat snapped he reeled back with the carrosse the woman was free he was at her again but she doubled under his tossed-up arm striking back and up as she did so and getting him in the armpit as her husband thought by some means she was at liberty off and away not along the glade but winding swift and puzzlingly amid the tangling scrub of which she knew every game track by heart this was the saving of her as pullune saw and breathed again for two other hunters now upsprang from beside the path which they had anticipated her flying feet would follow these seemed for a moment somewhat out of it for their quarry had doubled back and secured a lead but they were hardened braves in the pink of condition winter hunters who seemed to know the valley and once clear of that patch of scrub what would happen there is but one thing that can happen when an unarmed woman is set upon by three armed men unless indeed she be helped but how was dayan to be helped and by whom by himself only he smote his stiff knee and yelped a short and very bitter laugh yes the girl must come to him for help at the last meanwhile she was playing the game running her ring about the thickets as a vixen does when roused there was just the off chance that she might throw her pursuers out and get back to her earth unviewed but with three men and such men it was the poorest of chances and she was incurring the most outrageous risks she had boasted to him somewhat of her speed and he had believed that she was fleet for a woman but what woman or what man for the matter of that could stand up before three she was heading down glen 
when he lost sight of the chase, and every step would have to be retraced, and the double made in face of a runner-up, pressing for her all he was worth, and flankers running wide to cut her off when she turned. He threw himself upon the cave floor, and gnawed his knuckles in impotent chagrin. She should not have turned, she should have headed straight for him at once. They would have stood out the siege together, and died together. For that was what it would have come to, as he saw too clearly. As for his wife making a successful stand anywhere, or under any circumstances, and fighting it out with that new thing of hers, the idea never occurred to him once during the long hours of his lonely vigil. The shadows of the winter's day lengthened. The imprisoned man had given up hope. His wife did not come, would never come to him again. The husband's heart grew heavy with the sorrow which settles down upon the watcher, whose anxieties are over at last, whom the worst has befallen. For himself he did not particularly care. He had no fear that she would give him away under torture. Dayan would be staunch to the last, of that he was assured, doing her justice now that she was gone. He had stores enough for another four months, and long before that would be as sound a man again as ever he was. But this cave would be a hateful place without his squaw. Nor could he face the thought of returning to his tribe without her, empty-handed, with nothing to show for his winter hunting. This was a humiliation not to be borne, the sneering inquiries of his cousin and rival, the wonder of his fellow braves, the eyes of the women, no wife and no scalps. Whether besieged or no, Pulyun would stay back and avenge her. What was she worth in little moon lives? He held up all his ten fingers and solemnly gloomed upon them. Ten should die for her, if he lived, not less. So the night wore. Then a stick cracked below in the darkness, and her signal, the shrill whistle of the marmot, rang out. His heart leapt, he gripped his axe and a stone for a down-throw. She would be hard-pressed to a surety. But why did the fool creature make such a noise? It was madness. He hurpled to the lip of the rock platform, and craned over, peering down into the impenetrable dusk below, ready for action, listening, eye, ear, and nostril at stretch, for news of the whereabouts of his foes. But the only sounds were the scrape of his squaw's moccasins, and her hardly taken breaths. How heavily she climbed! Was she wounded? She did not reply to his low-spoken questions. She was coming nearer, nearer. His eyes, accustomed to seeing in the worst of lights, could make out her bare, unbandaged head and shoulders, her arms too. There seemed little the matter with what of her he could see. Her carosse was gone, he had seen it go. She was still encumbered with that silly bag of arrows, and the big bow-drill hampered her climbing. Drawing her breath in gasps, she reached the sill of the cave, crawled in, and sat mutely panting, her eyes shining glassily in her head. She seemed unharmed. She was unharmed. It was wonderful, amazing. Now, what had happened? 
why could not the creature speak what of the chase dayan still mute and with an open mouth drawn up from the teeth with the muscular contraction of extreme toil she unrolled and laid out before him in the dusk one two three bloody scalps each with the topknot of a brave raw fresh stripped Pulyun caught his breath in with a harsh cry what what how where but the woman squatting over her spoils did not answer she had reached her farthest she swayed she leaned she collapsed she tumbled forward almost into his arms the man drew the bearskin over her as she lay shuddering whimpering he marvelled to hear her long-drawn sobbing in the darkness this was new indeed never had he known her to weep presently she relaxed and slept he watched her slumber gnawing a tortured lip incredulous and convinced exulting and humiliated adoring and furiously jealous by fits what would come out of this twas glorious but twas absurdly disconcerting wonderful no doubt past whooping but not to be put up with at midnight she awoke with a start sighed once rubbed her eyes put back her hair pulled herself together and was a new creature ashamed of her weakness she silently got to her feet made up the fire and cooked food for both pulyun watched her would give her time when she had eaten forth it came she had led her pursuers over a long and difficult line hoping to throw them out but kaulu though less fleet than she was not to be shaken off in fact he had pressed her hard and fired thrice as the leading greyhound fires at his hair whilst the others running to point had headed off her attempts at doubling the men were in training knew the country and thought to wear her down by sprinting in succession again and yet again had her turn of speed been the saving of her but she was getting a long way down the glen and the daylight held it would see her out unless she changed her tactics in a little while she would be out of her country and for aught that she knew in theirs then the game would be up so tightening her throat she had made up her mind and doubled right-handedly close across the line of lomar whom she believed she had hurt taking the risk of his assegai at short range her judgment justified itself when the hunter threw short with a gasp and she slipped past him and made her point a salient rock-face that she knew steep narrow where she could neither be overlooked nor outflanked there at more than a very tall spruce tree's height from the last stones of the scree below her she had chosen her ledge and stood at bay regulating her breath and schooling her swimming head for the final tussle i think those rocks were not wholly new ground to thee suggested the listener i had been up there before three years back when i was a girl our old men call them the two fangs but the tribe has renamed them they are the hungry boys since since something happened there which is not good to speak about she shot a glance over her shoulder to make sure that the dead were not listening three of our unproved lads 
two half-groans and a child, whilst burying, were driven up that cleft by a wolf. They were not found in time. The two boys must have eaten the little one. Then, who knows, perhaps they fought with knives. They were found up there dead, with the bones. Not a clean place after dark. Surely your children went wide of it in all lights. How then? The boys I played with dared me. Not one of them would do it. There was a gnawed finger-bone still in a crevice. So, I knew my footholds today. Pouillon laid his hand upon his mouth, and perused this wife of his, in the flicker of the brands. There was nothing in this by-incident to excite surprise, a piteous tragedy. The coarse woof of savage life is occasionally shot by such a crimson warp. His mental vision was busy with this woman's adventure, picturing the tall, splintered aiguille, springing sheer from its scree, cleft by its one narrow cheminée, leading to its one broad platform ledge so far aloft there. Yes, he had realised the mise-en-scene, and could follow the woman's weary voice, carrying on her story, and could accompany her point by point. The pursuers had seen that she was at the top of a blind couloir, from which was no escape upward, saw too that the overhang protected her from anything sent down from above, saw too that the rock was absolutely sound, and that she had nothing to throw, a point in their favour. Then, since daylight was waning, they determined to put the thing through. Their camp, dogs, good wolves, carrosses and sleeping robes were hours away. There was neither fuel nor water upon that scree beneath the cliff. After all, strong runner as she was, this was only a girl, unarmed and probably spent. Up came the leading couple, boldly and close together, and only when fully committed to the business, recognised the trap. The girl, who by this time recovered her wind, held her fire until the leading climber's topknot showed twenty feet below her ledge. She knew him for Gaulu. He turned his head, saw her leaning above him, handling the absurd bent stick which she had carried throughout the run, and getting his breath made her a mock offer of marriage. The same bitter little jeer that he had cast after her thrice during the chase. As he made it, he laid his head back upon his shoulder, the better to leer at his helpless victim, now safely under his hand. And even as he bared his dog-tooth, a little short, light assegai was sticking deeply beneath his ear. The stricken man plucked hard at the shaft with one hand, the bonehead was barbed, and he could not draw it. He uttered no cry, possibly from shame, more probably from inability to articulate, and his fellow-climber, Pongu, just below him in the cheminée, getting no reply from him, and craning out to learn why his leader had stopped, knew not what had happened, before a second shaft was driven hard and deep between collarbone and shoulder-blade into his own lung which brought him, too, to a stand with his mouth and nose full of blood. Each man knew that he was hard hit, but knew not of the other's hurt. Each felt the immediate need of getting down, but neither could speak nor warn the man below him to vacate the footholds. 
to give ground to a young squaw was despicable. Both held on grimly, doggedly, and too long. Loma, the lowest, came up the cleft, haltingly, crippled by that stab in the armpits that we know of, and which he had known for hours past, to his bitter cost. Point of the master-girl's knife, whilst making a quite inconsiderable puncture, had touched one of the nerves of the brachial plexus. His right arm felt heavy and numb, and was giving him exquisite agony, which he was bearing as mutely as a wolf. He knew by trial that he could not throw, but thought he could climb. His honour was engaged. To be known henceforth as the warrior who was lamed by a squaw, not he. He saw that the leaders had stopped, and without visible cause, although Pongu, two spears' lengths above him, was coughing fast and hard. He could not see their wounds, nor the weapons which had caused them. But the patter of falling blood from the severed artery in Gaulu's throat warned him of something amiss. Then an assegai clipped past his own ear very close. Phew! What was this? Whence had this she-link's weapons? Was this an old haunt of hers? And had she led them up this cleft to spear them with javelins stored for the occasion? His position, almost exactly beneath his leaders, had its advantages. Their bodies screened him. He offered the smallest of marks. But a fear suddenly gripped him, bred by the silence and immobility of those leaders. What if one of them should fall? He hailed them by name, but elicited no reply. I must get from under them while I may, thought he, and attempted a traverse, a ticklish piece of work for a man so hampered. If he could but escape from this cheminée, this death-trap, and win around the buttress to the left, he would, as he reckoned, be under cover. He made the move, and not a moment too soon. Why, oh why, had not one or the other of his mates fought his way up within swing of a tomahawk? There is no throwing to be done while scaling a vertical fissure. Tomahawk, indeed! Gaulu, being by this time in exceeding evil case, and growing blind and weak, dropped his hatchet, and a moment later, with never a cry of warning, let go altogether. His knees buckled, his body bent, and down he came upon Pongu, and took him to the bottom with him. There they lay, their life's business accomplished, the matter disposed of, so far as they were concerned. Then, Lomar, for almost the first time in his life, knew fear. Yet it no more unnerved him than the proximity of the leading hound relaxes the sinews of a failing fox. Desperately, yet cautiously, he wrought to put that salient overhang of cliff between him and the master-girl. It was but a matter of a spear's length. If he gained it, he was safe. He had paused in his climb, as who would not, when the bodies of his friends rushed down past him. Quickly, he withdrew his eyes from them where they lay. To look too long upon such a sight does a climber no good and in another step he had won shelter and comparative safety, when, how say it, his left arm, the one upon which he chiefly depended, was pinned down to its shoulder, 
by a small but astonishingly hard-thrown assegai oh the pang of it and the ignominy of it being twice maimed and held up by a squaw he gnashed his teeth hearing the clear triumphant laugh of the master-girl above him and then in a wink that laugh had changed to a thrilling brief scream and something light came bounding down the fissure the bent stick the girl had held in hand when she crossed him he must glance up knowing his wound but not yet understanding his luck nor perceiving that his enemy was already disarmed and saw that enemy in a very close place for she whilst laughing had been overcome by one of those revulsions which lie in wait for the overstrung her desperate exertions her desperate risk followed by such unimaginable success had shaken her she had leaned too far over watching the effects of her shaft and had almost followed it and oh husband let the master-girl tell the adventure in her own words then for the second time i so nearly gave up the first time was when gaulu made his last sprint for me my heart seemed bursting my legs shook as i raced he got to within throw i felt all up my back what was coming this is the end i thought but his hatchet struck my quiver then i took fresh heart i remembered thee my man shall not starve like a sick badger in his earth little moon help my man i prayed and new strength came to my legs and gaulu dropped back blown it was after that that i doubled and all came right but now for the second time i thought all was over i had overbalanced i stumbled i let fall my bow and my last arrow and came down twice my height scrambling and clutching hard when i stopped and my eyes cleared i was in a bad place and could find no footholds for ever so long but again i thought of thee and again i cried to my totem and lo at once my right foot was on something and i was safe safe echoed polyun hoarsely catching his breath with all thy weapons at the foot of the cliff and that half crippled wolf between thee and them was there no scraping past him it was not to be done he was well placed astride the outer angle of the buttress with both feet firm but the only holds for getting down that cheminée lay close under his hand and he knew it i worked down to within my length of him but it would not do i had to return to my ledge and wait and he he made mouths at me and said all the worst that he knew no i will not tell you what he said this is his scalp is not that enough nay but i will hear what said he first he fixed his eyes upon mine and would have charmed me down and when that would not serve he must show me point by point what must be the end this hold and that hold and then the one next to him and that as i must needs come down feet foremost he would set his hand or his teeth in me for he was too badly hurt to get down himself and it was all come down to me my little love and thou and i will go gently to the bottom together and thou shalt sleep long over long and soundly very soundly in my arms 
"'Eh, but he said that,' blurted the husband. "'Which did say was his scalp?' "'What matter? Nay, thou must not spoil it. It was almost the last thing he did say.' "'Oh, but we were thirsty, he and I. I sucked the rock. And cold, we were cold. I could see him shaking. Is he cold now, dost you think? I hope he is very, very cold.' "'And then?' asked the husband, recovering himself, and prosaically detached from the possible sensations of a dead enemy. But Dayan paused. Yes, what then? For there seemed no way out of this stalemate. The man might cling on there until the woman above him perished of the night's wind-frost, of exhaustion or thirst, or made some despairing attempt and met her death so. But what of the other? the brute denizens of the glen. The rapid movement of a chase hath a stimulating influence upon whatever is within sight or hearing. Have we not seen the apparition of a pack of hounds in full cry set a whole countryside in motion? Horses at grass, calves, colts, sows, pigs of all sizes, breaking bounds. Yea, the heavy-footed Wessex labourer, school-children the curate upon his rounds and the village postman upon his swept out of their several orbits and drawn into the tail of the passing comet yes these four racing figures had been seen and noted and followed as far as appetite prompted or means of progression allowed a lean lone wolf with a festering forepad struck the trail and limped on at a steady questing three-legged trot in hopes that the end of the matter might provide something toothsome the rapid movements of parties of men had been known to have such an effect even at that time as since but the chief watchers and followers had been the fowls of the air every mountain peak had then and many have still a planetary system of birds of prey in clear weather these swing in circles at unimaginable heights, scrutinising in every turn, every radiating glen, and remarking all that moves therein. Yes, man and beast, each fly-tormented mule, new-yeaned ibex kid, and German botanist, climbing economically without a guide, is marked, scrutinised, summed up, and kept under day-long observation, and his probabilities of life assessed upon certain grim actuarial tables known only to the tribes who seek their meat from god you had not thought it you scarce credit it have never seen them but they have seen you and in the haute pyrenees or the atlas your every step has been marked from your rising up to your lying down without counting the buzzards which are chiefly concerned with mice there are at least three kinds of watchers of the world below first and most in evidence is the griffon a lordly creature to the eye with vast square-cut wings and a small woolly head sunk into a snow-white ruff a vulture he with a vulture's appetite for carrion and for nothing else his interest in a man begins when that man is in the act of falling and becomes urgent only in the case of the fall proving fatal the eagle is smaller but more powerful he too is a carrion feeder 
but will carry off grouse, marmot, and red deer calf. In hard weather, Scottish eagles will pack and destroy a full-grown hind, whilst the larger race of Tibet is credited with killing wolf in fair fight. But the fear of man is on him. He learned it long ago, and there is no record of this bird attacking even a small boy. Sooth to say, he is both cowardly and stupid, though all glorious to see. Last and most formidable, because incalculable, is the great bearded vulture, or Lamagaya, the Jipayet of the Gavani Izard hunters, a sly ruffian who makes up in brains what he lacks in weapons. This sort is as fond of carrion as the others, and has ways of his own for providing it. The master-girl and her pursuers had not run three bow-shots before the eye of a watcher was upon them. By the time they had gone a mile, the whole planetary system of the nearest peak was disturbed, and before the girl had taken sanctuary, a ring of big birds was circling half a mile above her. This might mean business. Her climbing was watched by the griffins without excitement. Their turn might come later but had not come yet. It was the bearded vulture which dropped out of the blue in bold spirals, and marked the four humans disappear into that cheminée. Then, if a bird of prey ever swears, he swore, for a man climbing between the straight walls of a cleft is of no use to him. When two bodies fell, there was commotion, the griffins shut their wings and plunged two thousand feet in a few seconds, but clapped on the brakes and bore up again with the wind rattling in their great drab quills, for the bodies had not rebounded upon the scree, but lay close under the rock, where something else might fall. Patience, brothers! Moreover, there were two living figures yet upon that rock, and these the griffins held in fear, they climbed the sky again and waited on, wheeling narrowly and near. Not so the bearded vulture, playing a lone hand and pursuing the traditional tactics of his race. He skimmed the summit of that aiguille and took stock of its capabilities. Two humans were still within the cleft. The upper was well sheltered from above and on both sides. He turned short to keep her in his eye, a wicked crimson eye it was. At that moment she faltered, slipped, and was almost gone. Instantly he dipped and edged in, but she recovered herself. Out he went again. Whilst turning, he once more caught sight of the lower figure. He had lost it for a while. It had shifted, had emerged from the cleft, and was clinging to an unexposed projecting buttress, overhung from above safe from a downright stroke but from a side flick eh the human moved slowly it went short upon one of its forelegs it seemed and was very lame very tired and unsure of its footing meanwhile the two humans in question knew nothing of the scrutiny of which they were the subjects being otherwise and fully engaged besides griffins may guide a hunter to a kill but signify naught else. The presence of the real danger had clean escaped them, for the bearded vulture is less given to soaring than to gliding along a cliff-face close in, 
ready for the emergencies of anything that moves thereon. The light had begun to go. It was abominably cold. A flurry of small snow found its way into the cleft, and ran in little round dry pellets upon the naked back of the master-girl, crouching for warmth like a hare in her form, and hugging herself against the strong shudders which ran through her. To have fought her battle, and to have so nearly won, and to lose life and all from such a childish blunder. If she had but the smallest of weapons, a skinning-knife, a bodkin, she would take her chance. But the bodkin had gone when the carosse went, and her knife had been wrenched from her hand when she struck. There was not one little wee loose stone within reach. She had tried them all, even to breaking her nails. And that wretch, Lomar, down there, not six bows lengths away, lamed as he was, would be girding at her all the time, breaking off at whiles to work desperately at that crippling arrow. It was certainly loosening. One barb held, but such was the fellow's courage that he would tear it out yet, and then, until it drew, he could not get back into the cleft for his pinned-up hand was upon that side. When he rested from his bouts of self-torture, he indemnified himself by assailing her with insults and taunts, governing his voice lest she should guess how far he was gone. She did guess, and with chattering teeth, gave him fully as good as she took. It was very pitiful, inexpressibly vulgar, this nose-to-nose pitched battle of primeval Billingsgate. Lo, did ye think that passionate hate first found expression in our time? He played upon her shaken nerves. Could she not see those child-eating boys, sitting at her either elbow, their reddened teeth a-work, click, click, to which Sally, de Yan, stroking her own hair, and pointing down to his, rejoined that his scalp should hang from her belt, ere the night, with the topknots of the other two, and ah me i have no knife lomar shall i find it under thine arm or am i to borrow thine for our little business with other like endearments pity them both in the middle of one of her reposts the girl choked for the last barb had given his arm was free nodding to her mutely for he was well-nigh sick with agony the man brought his hand down he stripped the feathers biting the gut whipping and took the barbs in his teeth he had but to draw the knock through his forearm and would be not only free but weaponed he drew inch by inch it came he had it in his hand now my heart i begin wait for me my dove my love i am coming for thee he shook the new snow from his ears shifted his hold lifted a foot still grimly nodding his unspoken threat and next moment was reeling out into empty air whilst a huge bird which had dealt the buffet staggered past and plunged then opening wide wings regained its balance and swept short zigzags down down in pursuit of its falling booty but the master-girl beat her little fists upon the stone and wept. "'I would have killed him yet!' she wailed in that bitterness of spirit 
which overcomes the bravest when the ideal perfection of some all but achieved success has been marred at the ultimate moment it is always so in life napoleon instead of yielding his sword to the conquering briton rattles off from his last battlefield in a well-horsed caleche nor did every french ship strike her colours at trafalgar nor did the allies enter sevastopol on the night of the alma as they might have done so easily nor did kitchener catch the gallant and adroit divet her chaplet lacked the full foliage that is accorded to the victor in fiction only bear not too hardly upon her ye who are proudly and perfectly straightforward in all speech and action if i confess upon her behalf that in after-life the master-girl made not quite so much of the bearded vulture's intervention as you might have done she had achieved an unheard-of and almost incredible feat and knew it but now came that deadly reaction the shape strength was ebbing from her would her luck hold she had no fear of her feathered ally him she craning far over had watched take season of his kill and then as the light went suddenly spread vast wings and racket tail and sail forth across the darkening scree and blacker forest spires to some roosting cranny of his own her knees gave way beneath her her wrists jerked as she let herself down from the ledge to jut and from jut to cranny of that cheminée of death her eyes were set in her head and her jaws cramped with a tongue-drying ague of fear and falling in a word she was as nearly forspent as a girl of sixteen may be and has a right to be who has run as she had run fought as she had fought and fasted as she had fasted and was still fasting at last after what agonies of apprehension and endurance the tension upon her fingers might be relaxed for one foot was upon the first loose stone of the scree its fellow found something soft and chilly beneath it at the touch of a dead enemy the master girl's eyes were enlightened as if with food the rights of victory must be observed she fell too panting thickly as she cut and tugged not for the horror of her task but from sheer exhaustion and whilst arising to her feet to utter the three whoops which the occasion demanded still given at the breaking up of a fox and more ceremoniously with winded horn as the halalai at the death of the german stag found her legs bending and dropped to sleep upon the stones between her silent foes so have men fallen asleep upon the rack when the screws were eased but the porter soul which seldom sleeps would allow her no long respite much remained to do and was she not still in peril before long she suddenly threw the gathering snow off her and glanced around keenly the night wind blowing up the crevice was tainted with what four green shining eyes were watching her she sniffed fox and contemptuously drew a stone and ere its rattle had ceased felt her scalp crawl for over the spruce spires travelled the drear anti-human menace of the wolf 
her totem was obscured and for once seemed far but there was another resource near at hand and familiar if only only it were propitious those malignant boy ghosts whose gibbering squeaks and rustlings had added untold horrors to the last hour of her darkling vigil upon the ledge these for some cause had spared her might she not entreat their continued good will she had known and played with all three before her promotion to the tribal governorship there was nothing between herself and the elder two the eaten child did not count doubtless they would be hungry oh how her own vitals pinched quick then an offering savagely desperately she hacked the hands from lomar and it had been impossible before her sleep bestowed them upon a ledge some five bows lengths up that dark ascent pennu labgoni here is meat see i bring you food i bring it in peril of my life ye who kept yourselves from the grey wolf keep me this night she was down again and tore herself from the place partake she would not though nature cried out for food a brave of her race would have had no qualms but a squaw no feebly and with her spirit riding her reluctant flesh as a ruthless rider urges a falling horse did Dayan set her face upon that ghost-guarded journey up the valley nor did wolf lynx or worse molest her her foes were the tormenting thoughts which vulture-like wheel closely around a spirit encumbered by a weakened body was it worth it her man had grown cold and silent and strange to her twice the agony of wounded affection superadded to crushing bodily fatigue brought her to a stand beneath dark boughs at some rougher gradient then with shut eyes and chin driven hard against a labouring bosom she fought it out the nurse spirit triumphed if i lie down and sleep here i shall not awake again and he will die or at best be a lame man for his life then lifting her face again she would draw a deep breath and set her jaw to endure the anguish of walking and so by a series of shortening spurts reeling and rocking she reached the foot of the face but it was a dog-weary girl without one spark of the pride of victory alight within her who crawled in over the cave-sill chapter five